This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, it's Guy here. Uh, Before we start the show, just a quick note to tell you that if you're listening with children nearby, uh, you know, you might want to... You might want to crank it up! Uh, what? Mindy, did you just do that? Sorry, I didn't realize there was a wall there. What? Anyway, I just heard you mention children, and I thought you were ready to tell everyone about our new show. Well, I I was going to wait until, uh, you know what? Never mind. Let's, Let's do it. Yes! Everyone, meet my friend Mindy Thomas. Hi! So Mindy hosts this amazing kids morning show on SiriusXM's Kids Place Live channel. And for the past two years, I've been joining her each Friday to talk about new discoveries and science stories in a kid-friendly way. And so we decided to... uh, To go big time. Yes, you could put it that way. And so if you are a parent or someone with kids in your life, I'm here to tell you about a brand new podcast for elementary school-age kids. It's NPR's first ever kids show. It's called Wow in the World. And it's hosted by me and... And by me. And every week, we'll take you and the kids in your life through awesome adventures, through some of the most wow-worthy events in science, technology, and new discoveries. Plus, we'll introduce you to the people who are changing our world as we know it. So as many of you know, I am a parent. And so am I. And both of us struggle with the challenge of screen time for our kids. So, you know, we decided to come up with our own solution, a podcast for kids and their grown-ups that inspires wonder and imagination with no screens required, except for the screen you need to subscribe. And you can do that right now. Wow in the World premieres on Monday, May 15th. But you can hear the trailer by subscribing to Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. All right, Mindy, I think I'm going to have to kick you out now because I have to get back to the show. And I got to fix that wall. I still can't believe you busted through that wall. That's the magic of radio, Guy Raz. Wow in the World, NPR's new podcast for curious kids and their grown-ups. Subscribe now on iTunes, now called Apple Podcasts, or however you get your podcasts. And now, back to How I Built This. We had grown so fast. We had television going. We had started investing heavily into the digital side of things, a lot of staff. And we were in the middle of that when 9-11 happened. And of course, people stopped traveling and travel guides then just stopped. Did you think that there was a possibility that the whole thing would collapse? Yeah, we did have to let people go. We did have to cut back the number of books we did. And I honestly believe that the whole thing could disappear. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Tony and Maureen Wheeler backpacked along the Asia hippie trail in the 70s, jotted down some notes, and turned them into the biggest travel guide company in the world. So much of how a company comes together happens by chance. I mean, think about it. If Sergey Brin and Larry Page never met, would there be Google? If Kate and Andy Spade never worked in the same clothing store in Tucson, Arizona, 
would Kate Spade bags have happened? Same thing for Airbnb or Instagram or Warby Parker. They all happened because of a chance meeting, just a, a moment in time that could have passed, which is kind of the story of Lonely Planet guidebooks, because it all started on a bench in Regent's Park in London on an October afternoon in 1970. Maureen Wheeler was just looking for a quiet place to sit and read. And as I was walking around the park, there was only one bench that had sun on it. And I walked around several times because on the bench there was also a young man. And I thought, if I sit in that bench, he's probably going to try and pick me up. And I really don't feel like that. So I walked around a few times and I thought, damn it, this is 1970. I can sit wherever I want. So I sat in the sunny bench and turned my back to the young man and started reading my book. Uh, and, and what were you doing, Tony? Oh, it's, a, it, it, it's appalling now. I, I had a car magazine. Um, new edition of it, and I was just reading that when this young woman came along and sat down and started reading Tolstoy. I mean, what do you do? I, um, I, I said, is this the end place to read on a Thursday afternoon? And she replied, did you reply positively? No, I turned around and looked at him and I was about to say get lost. And then um, he's got nice eyes and I liked him. So I said, um, I don't know. I haven't been here that long. They started chatting, and after a while, Tony asked Maureen if she wanted to go see a movie. So they went. And um, on the way home, he got lost. And we wandered around for quite a while before I realized he was lost because Tony just sets off really confidently and keeps going, thinking he's going in roughly the right direction. And the thing is, that's been our entire lives together. Anyway, that first date led to a second, and then to a third, and then... Twelve months to the day later, we got married. And Tony's proposal was very prosaic. We was, it was May. We were in May. And he said, I will have known your year on October the 7th. And he said, we should get married. And I said, you don't get married because you've known each other for a year. And he said, no, but we would save tax. <laughs> well, I, look, I, I was at a business school. So <laughs> that, that's my only excuse for that, I'm afraid. It wasn't the most romantic. So once you got married, did, did you think you would just sort of get jobs in London and start your lives? That was pretty much the plan that I, we met just at the start of my two-year course in London and we got married halfway through that two years. But um, sometime in that second year together, we decided we were going to take a year off and go traveling and that certainly changed things. How did you guys make that decision? What was the conversation you had? I don't know. It, it, you know, it was very much a thing to do at that era. I mean, later on, they started calling it the hippie trail. And we, we just called it the Asia overland trip, that you you left London and you headed east. But this was the era, you know, the music of the time was riding the Marrakesh Express and the, the Beatles were off in India. So there was a lot of sort of cultural significance to it. But we joined what became known as the Hippie Trail, and we headed east. So this is, I guess, around 1972-ish. And what was the plan? The plan was to drive from London to... To, to wherever. In, to wherever? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the car, we bought this car, and it was so cheap that we thought, well, if it breaks down, we'll get out of it and leave it by the road. Um, and we were going to go as far east as we could go. We had to dispose. Either it would break down or we'd sell it, one or the other. So, so when you guys set out, uh, you were like, 
you just start driving through Europe, and then uh, and then what? You just keep driving. You know, there's, you go into um, you go right to the border with Turkey and Iran, then you go right across Iran, then you go right across Turkey, uh, Afghanistan, and then you you just keep going through Pakistan, and then you go through India, and then you couldn't get across. You had to fly across Burma, and then we just carry on. The plan was we would get to Australia. And then we would stay in Australia and work for a while, and we'd save up enough money and we'd fly back to London. And that was, that was the plan. Hmm. See, we had so little money. We left London with four hundred pounds, so that was our money. And you just stayed, like, slept in the van. We did at times, but generally we camped most of the time across Asia until we really, actually, even in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, you know, a lot of the hotels in those days, there being gardens, and you could camp in the garden. At that time, how did you even know where to go and and what to do and and how to get the right bus? I mean, how did you figure all that stuff out? It's not that hard. (laughs) I mean, if you walk into a bus station in Afghanistan and you're kind of pointing towards the border, somebody will put you on the right bus, you know. Um, If you're wandering down a street with a bag and you're looking, you know, you look like you're lost, someone will point you towards a hotel or you'll see something that looks like a hotel, you know. You're uh, you're in a restaurant, you want food. Yeah, you know, it's it's not, it's easy. Well, it's it's easy today because you just pull out your Lonely Planet. All right, but I'm talking about 1972, right? I mean, there was nothing really... Yeah, but you you know, you managed. And, and actually, you know, what, what was great is that you could travel for weeks without seeing another Westerner. But then suddenly you'd pile in somewhere like Kabul or somewhere, you know, um, or Herat. And there'd be others. And you just spent maybe an afternoon just trading information, you know. When you get here, this place is good, this place isn't. You'd swap information that way. It was just like old-fashioned communication. Yeah. And what, like all, all along you are keeping a journal, Tony, or both you guys? Or? I did keep a diary. I've always been reasonably assiduous about documenting things and keeping records of things. What would you write down? Oh, just where we stayed and what it cost and how many miles the car had covered that day. And, and, you know, now I think about the palaces and the walls and the fortresses. You know, those things are just as important. But in those days, it was very much the uh, the information, which, of course, was a good thing. That's what we were later on selling. And and presumably you were, you were doing all this with, like, next to no money, right? Yeah. yeah. We had to do everything as cheaply as possible. So it was third-class rail and it was hitchhiking. We hitchhiked from Bangkok all the way to Singapore mm. for, to get down there. And then we went across by boat to Jakarta and then we went by bus to Bali. And then in Bali, we were really run out of luck. The airline that was supposed to that we were supposed to have tickets on to take us to Australia uh, broke down and didn't have any more planes. And so um, we met this New Zealander who had a little yacht and he was looking for crew to get down to Australia, so we got on his yacht and crewed to Australia. Was that, like, scary at all? Um, the only time I think I got really... We had a huge storm in the boat, and if I had had more sense, I'd have been terrified, but we were so busy hanging onto the boat. And then the thing, then we got to Australia, and I remember standing on the yacht looking at this coastline that had nothing on it, nothing at all. We had come in at a place that was miles from anywhere and there was nothing and I thought I have no there's snakes there's spiders I don't even know if kangaroos bite you I have no idea you know what are we doing here 
what did you think you would do there? Did you think you would hang out there for a while? Because neither of you had any connections in Australia, right? No. We went to Sydney, first of all. I mean, if you're going to go to Australia, Sydney is the golden city that you you all head towards. The, the yellow brick road leads there. As we were crossing the Sydney Bridge on our last ride, and I said, and it was not long after Christmas, so it was quite close to holidays, and I said to Tony, how much money have we got left? And um, he put his hand in his pocket came out and he said, we've got 27 cents. And I said, well, how much is that in English money? <laughs> Not much is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do? Like, how did you even... Well, I had a camera, so we, um, we went to the area of Sydney where you'd um, dispose of those sort of things, sort of a loan shop, and um, we got $25 for my camera, which I bought back a week later. So we had $25, and in those days, you could get a room for a week for $15, so we We got a, a room. single room with a single bed. <laughs> the guy let us both stay there in a communal kitchen and bathroom. You're newlyweds, you know, it was romantic. Oh, yeah. At this stage, we were married almost two years. No, a year, a year and a bit. Well, it felt like two years. Well, we've known each other for two years, yeah. (laughs) And I got a job again. Um, I got a job that afternoon instantly in in a little kind of corner shop, but they did sandwiches and things. And at the end of the day, they let me take the sandwiches home that were left. So we ate. And I worked there for a little while until we, and then we both, you know, got good jobs. Our one year trip had now become a three year trip. So what did you, what, what kind of job did you get, Tony? I got a marketing job for a pharmaceutical company. Maureen, you're working a job, another, what was the job you were doing in Sydney? I was a PA in a wine company. So you're working for a wine company. How do you get to a point where you're, you start selling a travel book? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Tony, Tony has all the great ideas, like let's travel around the world and let's do guidebooks. I mean, I always say Tony's the architect and I'm the carpenter. So he said, look, we should do a book. Of, of, of. Really, though, this was after we'd, we'd met so many people. Every time you went to some sort of party or met friends at restaurants and so on, always someone would ask us, where did you go? How did you do this? There was a lot of interest in the sort of trip we did. After a while, we thought, hey, we could, instead of just telling them and writing things down, and we'll actually you know, make, put the information down as in the form of a book and sell it. And I, I was working in an office where I was able to get my typewriter and bring it home at night. And I borrowed a guillotine when we were trimming all the books and, a, and one of those massive staplers. Mm-hmm. So we stapled the book together. So in a way, our, we kind of the, we were able to get enough equipment to do this. We had it printed, but it was um, it was a very basic little book. Yeah. It was a very it was actually done. It really was done on our kitchen table because actually we only had a kitchen, a kitchen and a bedroom. So and then you took it to a printer and, and you ran off a bunch of copies of it. We found a little. I mean, we didn't go to a big commercial printer. It was a guy who had this print thing in the basement under his apartment, and he he printed them for us. But we just printed the pages. We actually folded them and put them together, and as Maureen says, stapled them and trimmed the edges of the guillotine. And yeah. So it was really a home-produced book. You know, I, when when the, they were finished and done, and we had them in boxes at our apartment, I took a day off work, and I, I went straight to the bookshop that had said they'd buy 50 copies of it, and said, okay, here I am. <laughs> Write me the order. And, um, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'd sold a surprising number. I was what, did you, kind of, what was the price? 
Dollar eighty. Dollar eighty. It sold for it was ninety six pages. It sold for one dollar eighty. And it covered all the countries you went through. All of all of Asia in ninety six pages. <laughs> <laughs> Very brief. Um, but uh, I, I went into what we got our big break, I suppose. I went into one bookshop and she said, and I said, Do you want to buy this book? And she said, So what company are you with? And I said, Lonely Planet. She said, I've never heard of them. And I said, No, you wouldn't. And I showed her the book, and um, she said, Oh, what's your telephone number in case I want to get more books. Now, we didn't have a telephone, Mm -hmm. so I had to give her my work number. Anyway, she called me and she said, um, my flatmate is a journalist and she wants to interview you and your husband on television. So we went on television to talk about our trip and doing this book. Um, And that was our first big publicity thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I was was reading through your first guidebook, the, the pamphlet, and I mean, it's I mean, there there are some pretty different things in there, right? Like, I mean, like it tells you where you can find marijuana. It's and... not hard to find it. It was all around. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got, sorry. <laughs> or like where to get a fake ID and stuff like that, right? Yeah. yeah fake IDs. St- fake student cards. They were very popular. They probably yeah. still are in some places. I mean, I have to assume that you, you know, you guys could not have been like stoned hippies because you were pretty motivated to write every day and to go places and to catalog no, your business. We right? were actually really boring. We didn't do a lot of that stuff at all occasionally, but very rarely. In fact, it was years later, you know, as Lonely Planet became uh, better known, all these people who were using Lonely Planet, you know, and they were really cool people, you know, it was mm-hmm. cool people used mm-hmm. Lonely Planet. And Tony and I would be at the cafe and all the cool people, but we just didn't look cool. And yet we were the ones who had done these books. <laughs> you had written know? the book, yeah. So we'd sit there quietly while they're all being incredibly cool around us and think, oh, God, this is this is interesting, you know. Yeah. How did you come up with, with, with the name Lonely Planet? <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a story behind that. We, we got the book done. You know, we had, we had everything. We had a title for it. It was across Asia, on the cheap. But we didn't have a title for the the publishing house, a name for the publishing house. And we'd been out at a restaurant and drinking too much red wine, and we'd just been to see the rock and roll band on the road film Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Mm. It was Joe Cocker and Leon Russell traveling around the U.S. in the late 60s. It's a great film. And one of the songs in that, that, that movie, in that, that album, is Joe Cocker singing a song called Space Captain. And the first line of the song goes, Once while traveling across the sky, this lonely planet caught my eye. And I said to Maureen, I was humming the song, hey, that sounds nice. Why don't we call the company Lonely Planet? Hmm. To which Maureen said... Actually, the first line is Lovely Planet, and I wish you would stop singing. And, um, and he said, well, Lonely Planet's even better. And I said, how? And he said, well, it just sounds better. So I said, yeah, OK. Yeah, it's a great name. And but it's a great song for us as well. You know, we're learning to live together on this planet. It was great. So did the first book, like, make any money? Not much. No, yeah. it was, it was, uh, it, it in was some more or less way. covering the cost of the printing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't lose money on it, but it wasn't a, a real money-making proposition. But around that time when we were thinking of, okay, this is when we quit and head back to Europe, um, then we began to think, you know, that has sold surprisingly well. Maybe we should do another book. And what we thought was... Towards the end of the trip from London, we had come down through Southeast Asia. And of course, at that time, the Vietnam War was still winding down. So Southeast Asia wasn't seen as a, you know, a hotspot for a holiday. 
It was it was a place next to a war zone. Hmm. But we could see that was about to change. And we thought, okay, what we'll do is we'll travel around Southeast Asia and we'll write the best book anybody has ever seen on Southeast Asia. And we had a Yamaha trail bike. That was our transport. And at this point, Tony, did you think, this is it? I think this is what we're going to do. No, I, I still think, you know, we, we realized we'd sort of, we'd found a sweet spot. We found we were doing something that people really liked. But, it, you know, one of the things I've said a lot over the years is it, it wasn't like your dot-com or, you know, social media set up these days. They start on one day and a week later they're worth a billion dollars. Mm. Um, that wasn't us at all. We, our business grew very slowly. And I think it was, it was more like the snowball rolling downhill. You've got to keep pushing it at first, and then it starts to develop momentum and starts to get larger as it rolls down the hill. When we come back, how Tony and Maureen grew Lonely Planet and then shrank it and then almost lost it. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com/slash improving lives. 3M Science, Applied to Life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave, he worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So in 1973, Tony and Maureen were traveling around Southeast Asia once again, and they were doing research for their second Lonely Planet book. When it was just about finished and I had a dummy of the book, there was one big bookshop in Singapore. I got an appointment with a buyer for that bookshop. And I thought, I thought to myself, you know, he'll definitely, he'll certainly buy 10 copies. And if I'm lucky, he'll buy 20 or 50. He listened to my spiel and then I looked at my dummy of the book. I saw him writing Southeast Asia on a shoestring in the, on the order form and then write some number down. And he spun the order around and pushed it across the desk to me. And he bought a thousand copies. Wow. I, I walked out of that, um, that office, uh, you know, a foot above the ground and raced back to the hotel and said to Maureen, we've sold 20% of our print run to one bookshop. Fantastic. So after you saw the success of that book, what, I mean, what was your next move? And we did another one. <laughs> and another one, and another mm. one. People started coming to us with ideas for other books. And Maureen, did you think, I mean, so, so by the mid-70s or late-70s even, did you still did you think that this was going to be your work? I mean, did you did you both kind of focus full time on this thing now? Pretty much, although I was at university. 
But, uh, you know, I had plenty of time left to work on with Lonely Planet but the, the, fir- the first year, though, of Lonely Planet in, in Melbourne, you had a full-time job. Yeah. And, you know, we were living on your Maureen's salary while I worked on the books. I didn't think it was going to be our life. Hmm. Uh, I couldn't see how it could. It was still Tony and I living in a little rented house <laughs> with a pile of boxes, boxes everywhere full of books. And when we, you know, we'd, we'd wrap them, we'd address them, we'd put them in the back of the car and take them to the post office. I mean, you don't really see a multinational conglomerate <laughs> growing out of this. You know, I was still going down to the docks to pick the books up when they came in from the printer and then sending them out again. You know, it still felt like very much like a cottage industry, you know. And it wasn't like you went out and raised any money. You were just... No, nobody would give us any money. Yeah, basically, you know, if you told a bank, you know, what we were doing books on, they'd say, get a life. <laughs> it wasn't... Um... Yeah. No, we, were, we, were, we didn't have any money and we weren't making a lot of money, but we were making enough to keep on doing books. But we did find other people were coming to us. You know, they'd used our book and they'd say, you know, I really liked your book, Travelling Around Southeast Asia. I've been living in South America. You know, I could write a book about this place or that place. So we we started getting other people coming to us with similar ideas. And really, by the end of the 70s, we had about 20 books. Yeah. Well, what, what was the turning point? What was the book that, like, all of a sudden where you thought, okay, this is our breakthrough? Well, it, it was very easy to see that one. It was a, we did a book on India, and we researched that in 1980. This was the first time we'd, we'd been able to, you know, put a team into a place. So mm-hmm. Maureen and I were one team, and we had two other writers, and we sort of divided the country up, the north, the south, the middle. And I found out I was pregnant just about a week before I flew to India for this five-month trek around India. Wow, so you're pregnant traveling around India and were you guys just like like stuffing pamphlets and brochures and, and notes in your backpacks? Yeah, very uh, much so. There wasn't we... anything else. I mean, uh, we'd also collect every brochure, every timetable, every map. I mean, we'd go with hardly anything in our rucksacks and come back with this massive pile of information. Of stuff, yeah. Mm. Yeah, much easier these days We put on a memory stick. <laughs> yeah. And uh, suddenly we had this book that was over 700 pages and it sold for, you know, double figures. It was $12 or $14 or something instead of three or four. And it just sold. It sold we sold 100,000 copies of it. Wow. It was the first All India book of that kind, you know, guide that told you everything. And there wasn't, it, there wasn't a book like that, but there was all of that huge interest in India at the time, you know. So um, it, it just took right off. The company doubled its size overnight and we suddenly started taking on more writers and looking at other big projects. And and you had a baby at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do? I mean, how did you sort of do Well, we took her with us. You know, we, when she was... How old was Tashi when we went to India? Not to India, to Malaysia. Southeast Asia. Um, she was eight, eight months. Eight months, yeah. yeah. So we dragged our eight-month-old daughter around with us. And we have two children. And every school holiday, we'd, we'd just go Africa or Asia or wherever, and they'd travel with us for that period of time. So every time we got a chance, we'd go and travel as a family. But mainly, Tony was doing the writing and the sort of the planning and all of that, and I was doing the, the carpentry, you know, keeping it together. Yeah. And well, we'd actually moved out of the house. We had a real office, We'd yeah. moved into a kind of ramshackle office, and we had a lot of kind of loose contractors you know they'd float in and out and do a bit and float out again and uh, we paid them by the hour sort of thing so it was beginning to take shape in yeah. the 80s as a real business when at what point did you stop having sleepless nights about whether you were going to be sustainable uh, well no we had we've had sleepless nights 
Oh, every year. <laughs> I would say actually towards uh, late 80s, early 90s, I think was more when it became obvious that this thing had its own momentum and it was carrying us as much as we were pushing it. And I, I've talked to people who were doing the, handling the publishing at LP at that time. And they said it just seemed like we couldn't do anything wrong, that every book we did, you know, sold. And I, I think when we started doing Europe guides, because we we were this little publisher at the other end of the world who'd started off doing Asia. And when we finally did get around to doing Europe, we were big enough by that point that we could really do it well. And I think people in the office really got a kick out of that, that it was such a thrill doing that and sort of, you know, going out and taking on anybody in the world who wanted to try and compete with us. I mean, people everywhere you went were using Lonely Planet Guides. I mean, it used to give me a thrill, you know, even in New York, seeing someone come in with a German copy, Chinese copy, or, you know, whatever. Just, I used to love that. But, I mean, were there ever any moments where, you know, it wasn't going well? Oh, there was a period when things were not looking very good. And that happened at around, around 2000, and uh, we had grown so fast, and we reached a point where we were doing so much. We had television going. We had started investing heavily into the digital side of things, a lot of staff, a lot of, you know, we created a whole lot of desktop publishing before it was even a term. And it was eating away all of the money. The books were still selling like crazy, but we were just doing so much. And we were in the middle of that when 9-11 happened. And of course, people stopped traveling and travel guides then just stopped. Did you think that there was a possibility that the whole thing would collapse? Yeah, I, I definitely really? did. I, 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 I didn't. Tony, <laughs> Tony's an incurable optimist. I mean, and that's one of his charms, but it's also one of the most infuriating yeah. things because we were definitely looking um, at a really bad time. We were looking at, uh, we did have to let people go. Uh, we did have to cut back on our offices overseas. We did have to cut back the number of books we did. And it was looking, I honestly did believe that it was possible the whole thing could just disappear. Wow. I've got to say, in retrospect, I think Maureen's view of it was much more accurate than mine. So yeah. we really had to pull, start pulling everything um, together in a very but, serious but way. But we did. I mean, we did cut back and make it a much more efficient business. So it did turn around. It took a couple of years, but it mm. did turn around. But I guess it was around, around that time, I guess the mid-2000s, where you... You wound up selling the company, right? Yeah. I think we both felt that it wasn't the same company anymore. It was it was turning into much more of a digital company, and that has a way of taking over everything. It's not something I'm particularly excited about. We, we really felt it was time. It wasn't going to be a dynasty. We weren't going to hand it on to our kids. Our kids had both worked in the company at one stage, but neither of them were going to take it over from us. And, uh, and we just began to feel it was time to you know, move on to something else. And, I mean, did you, did it feel great to sell it? Did it feel sad? It was the saddest day of my life. Really? <laughs> One of the saddest days of my yeah. life. It was, uh, I remember walking to the BBC with Tony to sign the, the final papers. BBC, who, who bought it, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I said to Tony, do you have your passport? And he said, no. I said, no. I said, you know, if you had our passports, I'd just go straight up to Heathrow and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> we could still escape. Yeah. I think I drove the sale of Lonely Planet more than Tony did. And I always wondered, um, you know, if afterwards he would really regret that. I haven't. I know, he hasn't. <laughs> but I did worry. And there was a huge amount of grief about it. It took months for me to... I, I still find it very hard to go back to the office. And, um, you know, I just... It's just hard. 
I mean, from from somebody listening to this, like an outsider's perspective, and I know you've probably heard this from people who've said, you've just lived the dream. I mean, you got to travel around the world and create a company. And yeah, you sold it and it's not yours anymore, but it made you rich and look at your life. Oh, God. Listen, I think like that every day. (laughs) And we do, every year we do trips together and we do trips with friends. And then every year I, I go places on my own. There's, you know, that I know Maureen would not want to go to. Chernobyl. <laughs> Chernobyl. <Guess> <laughs> I wanted to check the radiation, how it was these days. Uh, I go to see ring cycles and operas. Mm-hmm. So. And I can go to opera, but there's a limit to um, my consumption of opera. You know, I am curious because I, I, I interviewed um, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, for, for this show. And he he was talking about an early relationship he had with with the woman that that helped him start Whole Foods and and how it really destroyed their relationship. It broke down over it. And and he says, you know, business can really bring people together. Or can it can just tear them apart? Oh, it can do both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you guys are approaching fifty years of marriage, and it just sounds like you have an incredible partnership. And I mean, were there times were there times when you were building up this company where there was tension and there was yeah. There would, you know, there was crisis, or there would, you know, there was. No, there, there was all of that, all of it, and a lot more. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we, we've had our fights, we've had our squabbles. It hasn't always been plain sailing. And uh, you know, you cannot, you cannot run a business where you bring personal stuff into the office. I mean, you can't avoid it to some extent. Um, and it was funny, you know, at Lonely Planet, people always knew. Uh, first of all, you come and talk to me about an idea, and I'll tell you whether it's worth. Tony has what's what's called the five second. You've got a five second window to engage his uh-huh. attention. You know, it's like the lifespan of a mosquito or something. So they would come to me and say, "Maureen, um, I think this is great. What do you think?" And I'd say, "I think it's good." And they say, "Shall I tell Tony?" And I'll say, "Yeah, let me talk to him first. <laughs> How much of your of your success and what happened with this company and and everything? Yeah, how much of it do you think is due to luck, and how much? because you're just really smart and skilled. You definitely need both. And there's that saying about, you know, whenever I'm working really hard, I I seem to be luckier. But, you know, we were lucky. We came along when the baby boomers were suddenly deciding they needed to go to more interesting places than their parents did. So there was that element. They were a big market. Well, that was important. There were all sorts of things that it was a very lucky time to be there. I don't know that skill came into it with Tony and I. There was judgment, I suppose, and um, and the fact that we were doing something that we knew everything about. But it's clear that, that this company could not have become what it became without without the both of you. I mean I mean you both brought different skill sets to this and and I mean amazingly, you know, this like chance meeting on a bench in Regents Park resulted in this incredible company. What did you, what were the traits that both of you had like that you brought to the company? Well, more in sense and mean nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tony, Lonely Planet would never have existed without Tony. He was the dreamer, the vision, but he also very cannily knew how he was going to place Lonely Planet um, very early on. And he never ran out of that that kind of mad enthusiasm, which carries you through so many things. Um, however, 
he was not good at day-to-day stuff. He never wanted to sit through meetings. He never wanted to sit with bankers. He he liked all his staff, but, you know, uh, he didn't want to hear what their problems were, you know, basically. That was um, terrible, I must it admit. It wasn't terrible. No, it wasn't terrible. It was just really... He just wanted to know what new book we were going to do and, you know, yeah. how big was it going to be and where the maps and pictures. I mean, we, the books that we did were fabulous books. If you look at our covers and inside, they just got better and better looking, which was good. And a lot of that was Tony. You know, Tony would look at a book and say, you know, this needs this. You know, this is what we need to do with this. So I would say that I guess I've always said that Lonely Planet could never have existed without Tony, but it probably wouldn't have held together as long without me. I'd agree with that. Tony and Maureen Wheeler, founders of Lonely Planet. By the way, at its height, the company was valued at a quarter of a billion dollars. The Wheelers are no longer formally involved with the company. They sold all their shares. But Tony did recently score a gig writing a chapter for a new Lonely Planet book. It's called Epic Drives of the World. And as I speak, Tony is on a three and a half month drive from Bangkok to London in a classic British MG sports car. And one last question for you. When you travel, like, what is the thing you have to have in your carry-on bag? My passport and a credit card. (laughs) That's boring. Come on. (laughs) Now, for me, it's I've got this wonderful pair of cashmere slippers. Oh, nice. They are so cozy and comfortable on. When I get on a plane and I put them on, then I I kind of can relax. I've never seen those. Yes, you have. You just (laughs) never noticed. And please don't turn us off just yet. In a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you guys are building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, Squarespace. Do you have an idea for your next big move? You can use Squarespace's award-winning designer templates to create a beautiful website or online store equipped with everything you need to run your business. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code BUILDIT for 10% off your first purchase. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And this story, well, let me just say it uh, it starts with a plastic bottle, and I have one right here in the studio with me. Slightly full of water, but about a quarter of the way up. Okay, and that sound, that is the sound of me flipping this bottle a full 360 degrees so that it spins in the air and then lands right side up which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do. But it is the type of thing that middle school kids can become totally obsessed with. In fact, it became this huge deal last year. It was really popular. Which is where Michael Mendocino comes in. Like, everyone at school was doing it. My friends would come over to my house just to flip bottles sometimes, and we'd just see how many different cool trick shots we could do, basically, and just do cool stuff with it. So Michael, he's 15. And he lives with his family in Celebration, Florida. And one night last November, Michael and his mom, Nicole, were at home watching TV. We were just sitting around watching Shark Tank, and I was actually bottle flipping. And we just came up with the perfect idea to create a board game and turn bottle flipping into a board game. And we looked at each other and we said, this is one of those just simple aha ideas. Just instantly, it wasn't like we had to discuss it, but we just said, let's do this. That, of course, is Nicole, Michael's mom. Anyway, the next day after Michael and his two younger sisters got home from school. We actually sat down and all evening um, we worked on coming up with 
a really crude prototype. Uh, we just got out the board games that we had in our house and we just started brainstorming. So the game they came up with comes with a bottle, a board with a target on it, and a deck of cards that have a bunch of different bottle flipping challenges on them. Like put your arms in the sleeves of your shirt like a T-Rex and flip the bottle, keep your eyes open without blinking and try to land five in a row before you blink. The Mendocinos found a manufacturer in North Carolina who agreed to make an initial run of 10,000 board games. We actually had the product available to ship on December 21st, so we just barely made it before Christmas. But of course they had to still get the word out. Yeah, so most of the products that I want to buy, I see people playing them through YouTube. So originally I started by reaching out to a few people that I watch on YouTube. And Michael asked them, hey, can I, uh, can I send you this bottle flip game and will you take a look at it? We actually sent them the game and they played it on their channel. And right now we have over 5 million views all around from all different channels. In their very first week, the Mendocino sold over a thousand games. And starting in August, Bottle Flip will be sold in about 100 Target stores. And if you're wondering about the sound of the bottle flipping, Nicole says hearing it over and over can drive a lot of parents crazy. So that's definitely been um, like a hurdle as far as marketing goes. But Michael says he's already started to notice a trend. When the parents play it with the kids, they realize how fun it is. And now the parents are kind of addicted. Bottle Flip is still a side hustle for the Mendocino family. Both Nicole and her husband are keeping their day jobs in real estate, but the game has already done $135,000 in sales since they launched it in December. And Nicole says she's already dreaming about the next idea for a board game. Hey, if you want to find out more about Bottle Flip, visit our Facebook page. Just search How I Built This. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing from you. And thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Please also subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts or however you get the show. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us. That's hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send us a tweet, it's at howibuiltthis. Our show is produced this week by Rachel Faulkner with original music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpur, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Summer movie season gets louder and longer every year. I'm Linda Holmes. For a guide through the blockbusters you know about and the surprise bright spots you might not, Pop Culture Happy Hour has you covered. We'll tell you what we're looking forward to, what we're secretly dreading, and what might just sneak up on all of us. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get podcasts. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I'm here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.